0: Hello and welcome to What Comes Next. I'm Kweku Akon one of the hosts of the show. If you're a regular listener, this episode is going to be something quite different. I'll be talking about Black Lives Matter and some of my personal experiences as a black man in the UK. My co-hosts Amy and Rob will be taking a backseat for this episode. However, I would like to thank them for their support and for the time taken in production. What comes next, we'll be back with an episode on Thursday discussing the technologies that shape our future. But right now, let's discuss Black Lives Matter. George Floyd paid the ultimate price in order for us to have this conversation again. In order for us to point out the things we all knew were happening previously and say how outraged we are by them. His murder, played on repeat on the world stage has forced us again to look at the ugliness of a system that allows and in fact encourages the murder and imprisonment of black men at the hands of the police. The visceral footage was of an unarmed black man with hands cuffed behind his back and his face crushed into the tarmac by a white policeman who knew he was being filmed as he bore down on the man's neck with his knee for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. With his victim pleading, I can't breathe, as the life was slowly choked from him. The fact that the officer had 12 outstanding complaints against him when he committed this murder is indicative of the very fact that this is not an isolated incident. It is a symptom of an intolerable status quo. It has caused shockwaves the likes of which we have not seen in a generation by pulling on the thread that connects all black people and uniting many other communities as well under the hashtag Black Lives Matter. This atrocity comes at a time when racial disparity has never been more clear, and short-sightedness from those in positions of power has been exposed as willful blindness. We saw the mask slip when Amy Cooper, a white woman in New York, wielded the implied threat of lethal force against a black man in Central Park by invoking the NYPD as her personal security force. We saw the brazen confidence with which she lied and drew this trusted weapon from her arsenal. We've heard Trump quoting 1960s police chiefs, threatening the most vicious dogs and disgracing George Floyd's memory. We've seen unarmed protesters manhandled by police, whilst white nationalists with automatic weapons are politely asked for their cooperation. But we've also seen Joe Biden talk down to the black populace, calling them non-black if they do not vote for him. This was two weeks prior to suggesting that shooting unarmed people in the leg, as opposed to the heart, is a viable second option. This happens to be a decent metaphor for black America's choices in the upcoming election. We've seen the world recaptured by the magic of Michael Jordan and weighing in on a black man's choice of whether to take a political stance 20 years ago. We haven't heard too much about the no doubt hundreds of white millionaires that Jordan created wealth for, the athletic scholarship route to college education that is the only viable option for many poor black students, the manner in which young black men are traded as commodities by white owners, or, of course, who is stitching all those Air Jordans together. We've seen black people four times more likely to be killed by the coronavirus in the UK. We've seen ethnic minority key workers placed at highest risk throughout the pandemic, with black doctors and nurses dying for a country that picks and chooses when to accept them, or ethnic minority couriers on minimum wage delivering our packages. We've seen Beli spat spatter in a racial attack in the UK shortly before her death of COVID-19. Of course, UK MPs have been given a pass on the lockdown rules that govern the rest of us, and we've seen videos of their elitist families passionately speaking about their belief in eugenics. These MPs, of course, are headed up by our Prime Minister that has denigrated Black people as piccaninnies with watermelon smiles. If the response in the UK seems unjustified and unrelated to anyone, then I'd encourage you to take an hour out of your day to search for Amnesty International's Appeal for the Windrush Generation. To look at the deaths of black men in police custody in the UK, to read the litany of racial slurs from our politicians, to watch a documentary on Stephen Lawrence's murder and the subsequent police investigation scandal, or simply to ask your children what they learn about black people in school. These examples are symptoms of a disease that crosses borders and takes different forms in each country, but it's the same struggle. Dehumanisation and the loss of life don't always have an easily identifiable bad guy, sometimes in a uniform, that we can point at. So if we want to understand systemic racism better, we need to be prepared to listen. I've been inspired by the writing that I've seen colleagues and contacts posting online of their experiences and have decided to share some of my own with you. I'd imagine that the sum total of this social media wave will give a lot of people a glimpse at a world that is being experienced in parallel to the one that they know. You may or may not be surprised by these. However, they should highlight why this is not a distant and historical issue, as BBC's Emily Maitlis claimed last week. It's in fact a local and a current issue, and one that occurs in situations that you might find yourself in. Oh, and it's not just easily identifiable monsters that are the perpetrators. If I'm completely honest as well, I see this as a form of qualification that I need to give when speaking about racism. That's partly because as a citizen of the UK, I benefit from the same systems that produce the racism I am fighting against. I'm also a university educated, mixed race man in London that has clawed out some success in my career. I cannot claim that my experience is as tough as that of others, but we stand together in solidarity this situation is complex. I've been stopped by the police six times that I can remember. One time I was under the age of 12, another because my brother and I fit a description of two black people that had stolen a phone. One of the times I was with a mixed group, dressed in suits, walking between venues at a wedding in the middle of the day. In this last instance, we were issued with a warning to leave the area immediately or one of us could be fined or arrested. That was in West London. Interesting side story, a number of black kids in Sheffield where I grew up, including myself, used to do lineups for the police. You know, the ones where an eyewitness picks from a group of similar looking fake suspects and the real suspect. We'd all get a call from the police saying that a crime had been committed and we'd go to the station and line up. Nothing wrong with this, but it definitely brings an awareness of law enforcement at a young age. And the fact that young black boys are being arrested often. The fact that I get asked for drugs on, I'd say, about 20 to 30% of nights out that I go on, this gets nastier when the person won't take no for an answer and has that, come on, yes you do fashion about them. The fact that as a group, with many London bars and clubs, it's a gamble as to whether a group of us black guys will get in. We get rough pat-downs from bouncers, sometimes inside socks or the rim of our boxes when we do get let in. Of course, having my bag randomly searched about half the times I go through an airport. In a work context, being told that I look like Barack Obama, that I'm a lovely shade of brown, that I don't understand how racism works, that one was by a white company director, asked if I know that I'm black because of the way that I conduct myself, overhearing a company director say to a room full of people, can't we just get him deported, about a cleaner when he didn't approve of their work. Being told by a white colleague that a girl in the office had a BGB, or black girl bum, Being told that I was too street, this person said that they knew this was how I roll but I didn't need to sell out in order to keep it real, which is absolutely ridiculous. Being asked if I know somebody purely because they are Ghanaian and from Sheffield and standardly being the only black guy in the room and often being sidelined in networking events. In a personal context, being called the n-word My dad being asked to resit all of his exams when he came to this country if he wanted to take the university place that he had already been promised. My parents being chased down the street and spat at for being a mixed race couple. Having to tell white guys not to use the M word to refer to each other on nights out. And I'm not just talking about song lyrics if that matters to anyone who's listening. Being called a packy. Interesting. Being described as two shades darker than a Twix. That guy was in the forces. In a conversation at a party, having a prolonged argument with someone insisting that calling me coloured was not offensive, being asked if I speak African, being shouted at by a teacher, what sort of a name is that? And when I replied, a West African one, he replied, what about a country? Overhearing, the last thing we need is a chab at the party, as I walked through a room full of white people at a university party. I was studying biology at the time at the same uni as them. Oh, and having a substitute teacher segregate one of our classes by race, by moving each ethnic pupil one by one to the opposite side of the room. These are just a few, and don't forget these are all instances of racism that occurred in front of me or to my face. I think it's reasonable to assume that there is somewhat of an iceberg effect going on here, with far more instances going on behind closed doors or underneath the surface. It's these things, alongside the stereotypical portrayals in the media, the whitewashing of British and American history, and the ongoing racist policies enacted by the UK government that force me to internalise an adaptation of my behaviour on a daily basis. Why? Because I don't get the benefit of the doubt. Because my colour and my name may be enough to put me on a yellow card before I have even opened my mouth to speak. I don't know who I'm dealing with when I walk into the room. You might think that a hoodie that on a white guy with a mustache suggests creativity on me looks intimidating or unprofessional. So, guess what? I dress more smartly than I need to, just in case, so that I don't give you any reason to devalue me and the interaction that we have, at least not over and above your own worldview. I don't know whether the only black people that you interact with on a daily basis are serving you coffee or cleaning your office. If that's the case, there's a very strong chance that you do not associate me or people that look like me with viable business partners. You may not value my time and what I have to say as highly as you might do if I was white. And my competitor that's also trying to sell to you, well, there's a good chance that they are white. So I might overcompensate. I might try and charm you. I might triple check an email because my name and a typo might be enough to torpedo a deal or enough that my contact wouldn't want to put their name against the deal when they discuss it with their boss. I might tiptoe around politics with you if you're in a position of power, because ultimately you might have decided that a Prime Minister that refers to my family and I as piccaninnies with watermelon smiles is a suitable choice to lead our country. And because addressing this fact in detail will force you to consider that you may have higher priorities politically, than ensuring that black people are treated as equal citizens, and that a travesty like Windrush never happens again. If I make you face this fact, you may no longer want to work with me. Because in a London office people might associate a Northern accent with someone they do not consider to be their peer, I'll soften the accent unless I'm absolutely sure I can expect better of you. I'm not giving you any excuse. Outside of work, I might take my hood down if a white woman is walking towards me on the street at night, because unfortunately there's a strong likelihood that she has been fed on a diet of movies, news stories, and music videos that suggest a black guy in a hood represents a threat. Sometimes it's just raining. These are real considerations that fade into the background and become part of the normality of work life for a black person in the UK, and I'm sure in the US as well, and around the world in fact. They are nonetheless real calibrations away from who we are or however we might normally behave. I feel ashamed to say that. Sometimes it's the high energy work persona or the slightly more well-spoken telephone voice. I'm sure it's not that way for all of us, but I know it's this way for a lot of us. Ask around and you'll see that this isn't an anomaly. Getting this wrong also has real life consequences for careers and earning potential. And the kicker is, you may never know when you slipped up or who decided you didn't meet the mark. I mean, in reality, racism often operates as unconscious bias. The person might not even realise they're doing it. So I calibrate just in case. For what it's worth, I am risking a particular current business opportunity and unknown future business opportunities by voicing these opinions publicly. If you're saying Black Lives Matter, then my question to you is how much? Because it's not enough if what you really mean is, Black Lives Matter, in the Western world, right now, whilst the world is watching, so we're cool, right? No, that's not the point. It's not only the overt and horrific acts that are simple to point a finger at, it's also the subtle and insidious ones as well. The dirty secret is that many of our institutions, many pillars of our economies, are based on fundamentally racist principles at their core from colonialism through to slavery, from the commonwealth through to today's sweatshop labor, institutional racism, and the police brutality that has, again, galvanized public awareness. For that reason, there is no return to normal if black lives truly matter. We are, all of us, guilty of engaging in cognitive dissonance and benefiting in part from systems that dehumanize non-white individuals albeit with ethnic minorities having a very different day-to-day relationship with this racism. If that weren't the case, our pre-existing knowledge of deadly racism would have sparked significant and lasting action long ago, without the need for yet another black body to tip the scales and focus our attention. Indeed, in the status quo that we have come to see as normal, one where the threat of murder is standard, we shouldn't be able to sleep at night. One of the questions that is being asked online a lot at the moment is, what can we do? And I'm asking the same question of myself. My answer to that would be, do what is uncomfortable. Find the part of your own psyche that disagrees with that statement, Black Lives Matter, and challenge yourself to change. So what would that be? Would it be teaching your children the real history of the British Empire? Would it be supporting the tearing down of the statue of a slave trader and not condemning those who did it? Would it be adopting the role of the party pooper when a racist comment is made at a party? Would it be re-examining your own patriotism? Would it mean taxing companies with unethical supply chains that begin in developing countries? Would it be hiring an employee? Would it be firing an employee? Would it be losing a deal? Does it mean examining what you consider to be acceptable from the leader of a country? What about your opinion of the royal family? What about the private prison system, which is making its way from the US to the UK? What is it that's uncomfortable to you? And how will you behave differently in the light of this if black lives truly matter? We are all constantly taking cues from a racist environment. Unless we have proactively sought out information to educate ourselves otherwise or sculpted a career path that sits outside of major institutions, then it is more than likely that we all will behave as a product of that racist environment. As the systems with which we engage are often intrinsically racist, they continuously produce behavior, situations, and privileges that we only need to open our eyes in order to identify and address. It fills me with hope to see that people are willing to educate themselves right now, because this will open our eyes even wider. Tweets are nice, but the important times won't be on social media. They won't carry a hashtag. The chances are that just like the daily racism that my brothers and sisters endure all over the world, your good actions may go unnoticed. They won't be on the news. They'll happen where institutional racism operates, with us. In the darkness. For real change, we don't need you on Twitter. We need you around the dinner table. We need you at a stag do. We need you through your buying choices. We need you in the privacy of a ballot box. We need you with your partner. We need you at a pitch event. We need you on your street. We need you behind your twitching curtain. We need you in a boardroom, in a client meeting, or in an unfilmed police stop.